Titus 1, and our focus this evening are on the five negatives in the seventh verse of this chapter, looking at the positives uh, next week, God willing. During the six years I worked in banking, I served under three different managers, and it gave me some insight into the range of managers there are and some of the challenges that they faced. The first manager insisted on a a full cash check if the the balancing at the end of the day was out by 10 pence. The next manager, if the balancing was out by 10 pounds, insisted that it would probably turn up the next day, go and help out elsewhere in the branch. The third manager, he would make the five pound the determining factor and if the balancing out was, was out by a fiver, then he would insist on a balance check. But it gave me insight into the challenges of their role and the decisions that they would have to take. They had a range of staff to manage, some more challenging than others. And they handled it in different ways. Some of them had strengths. Some of them had very glaring weaknesses. As you reflect on your work experience, what are the qualities of a good manager? What are the characteristics that should be absent? And it's this aspect of eldership that the apostle comes to address just at this very point. The word he uses in verse 7, God's steward, is the word for manager. The elders don't own the members of the congregation, but they steward, they manage the members of the congregation. As Ezekiel reminds us, the, the congregation belongs to the Lord. He is their divine and heavenly shepherd of his sheep. But he entrusts the care of his flocks to elders, to steward, to manage. And so what are the marks of a good manager, the apostle is asking? What are the defects that should be avoided in elders and in the process of electing New elders. And so he comes to look at five negatives first in this verse and then positive virtues in the subsequent verses. And as we said this morning and as we'll say throughout all of the sermons, the characteristics that are found here are to be found in every Christian. We're not looking for supermen. We're looking for men in whom the Christian life is advanced to a good degree. And the graces which should be found in every Christian have been, by the grace of Christ, matured in good measure in those men. And so these sermons are not just focusing on on the, the, the male genders of our congregation. They're for us all. These are virtues that all of us 
are to pursue and embrace in our life. So we come then to to consider uh, the five features that are to be avoided uh, in our lives. And as we prayerfully consider electing elders to use this passage to guide us and help us in our thoughts and decision. So we come then to this short list, but but an an important list, because it seems that the the apostle has selected, guided by the Spirit, uh, these five sins, these five vices, as, as I've called them, which are particularly challenging to leaders. Just because of their position, these five vices, they're not just chosen at random, but they're particularly related to people in authority. And somehow that, that attainment of power brings in particular temptations. And the apostle sets these down that, that any man who has these weaknesses now, they'll just be aggravated if they're set in positions of authority. And so it's really important for us to grasp their meaning and and to to use this as we prepare for our election. So the first vice that he exhorts us to to be absent is, in verse 7, He must not be arrogant. King James Version has self-willed. The term here, arrogant, as as, as you will know, describes the man whom nothing pleases and who pleases nobody. He's arrogant. He maintains his own opinions while reckless of the opinions of others. Unlike the psalm that we were singing, 141. He's careless of the feelings of others and contemptuous of the beliefs of others. Aristotle defined virtues by identifying the extremes on on either side. So in this case, he, he identified the man who pleases everybody and the man who pleases nobody. He thinks there's no way of doing things but his way. He's arrogant. Philo, another ancient philosopher, has bundled arrogance helpfully for us as we think about this with conceit and contempt. Conceit makes a person think too highly of himself. Contempt makes a person think too meanly of others. Arrogance, therefore, makes a person act on his own estimate of himself and of others. And all leaders tempted with arrogance. There's an interesting historical essay 
on the downfall of Margaret Thatcher. And it identifies arrogance as the cause of her downfall. She wasn't always arrogant, it claims, but she moved from great leadership to arrogance. She stopped listening to her cabinet. The poll tax was one instance of that. For the session to call an election of elders is good leadership. For the session to change the morning service to 10 o'clock without consulting the congregation would be arrogance. There's a fine line in our lives and in a person's character between arrogance and good leadership. And you're saying to me now, as you said this morning, (coughs) Martin Luther, he always had this line in his sermons that you're asking the question, but it was always the question he wanted to be asking. But I do think you are asking this question. Well, how can I tell if the man I'm thinking about is arrogant? Well, I give you what I think is a useful test. Does he listen to you? When you're speaking to him. Does he show interest in your opinion. Your question. Your point of view. Your problem. Your idea. Or does he cut you off mid-sentence? Does he seem distracted when you're talking? Is he interested only to talk and not to listen? And giving his opinion on the difficulties of navigating the M2 rather than listening to your difficulties in navigating the M2 over the past weekend. Is he quick to talk about his experiences, his achievements, but not patient to listen to yours? Not arrogant. Secondly, in our verse, he must not be quick-tempered. There are two types of anger in Scripture, and I think this phrase actually does embrace both of these aspects of anger. One is the volcanic type, person who blows their top easily, explodes suddenly and quickly, goes red in the face, shouts loudly, makes strong statements. And we've experienced that type. Maybe we're that type of person. The other is the the slow burn. The person who says nothing at the time, but notes your put down, your wayward phrase, your criticism, your sarcastic remark. And in his heart, he hates you for it. He nurses that wrath and deliberately nurtures it and keeps it warm. There's a long-lived anger. The slow burning Cain's heart against Abel. The slow burning anger in the Pharisee's heart against Christ. The slow burning resentment in Saul's heart against David. Not wrongly angry. Leaders are in the position where people 
Do criticize us. Do question us. Do say wayward words towards us. David Cameron said that his mum developed a thick skin when, she be- when he became prime minister. Leadership attracts criticism and wayward words. And how should a leader deal with that? It's got to be more than growing a thick skin. We've got to have a forgiving heart. Not a heart that simmers over wrongs done. Even if a person never asks them for forgiveness, we're not allowed to hold a grudge. We're not to give as good as we get. We get and we get and we get and we love God's people and we forgive them. Not quick-tempered. Choosing such a man who is quick-tempered or has slow-burning anger will inevitably come back to haunt you. They'll maybe be appointed your elder and you will cross them sometime and they will remember your wrong and return unfair treatment upon you in time. Such a person needs to visit the cross and their own conversion experience and recognize and feel afresh the action of God who did not deal with us in just divine anger but dealt with his son in our place to provide forgiveness and reconciliation to his people. Thirdly, he must not be a drunkard. And again, the temptation for drunkenness is strong within leadership. And perhaps there is a a greater pull to drunkenness among those who have authority and are under pressure and stress. And the weight of responsibility comes down on them. It's readily available in places of power and, and business. Social events and functions, alcohol flows freely. It's socially acceptable among those who are leaders to drink alcohol and to to get drunk. The pressures of leadership can sometimes bring a man to that place. One head teacher I know goes from Belfast to Donegal for the weekend just to get away from everything and handle the pressure. But sadly others turn to alcohol to deal with the stress that heavy responsibility brings. And so it's here in this list of leaders, not a drunkard. But why is it here? It's because... Drunkenness brings the absence of self-control. The drunken parliament of 1661 made cataclysmic decisions which reversed the work of grace and God within the nation. Proverbs 31 warns kings against excessive use of wine so that their judgments will be clear and their decisions will be under their control. We cannot advocate 
that the man is teetotal. The Bible doesn't advocate that position. When John Murray was teaching at Westminster, a ruling came out and and it was for the the benefit of the students that no alcohol was allowed on the premises and he disagreed with this. We don't drink in the mats or have alcohol in the mats. But anyway, this was John Murray's position. Uh, He disagreed with this authoritarian ruling uh, on, on, the, on the campus at, at Westminster and he took a glass of whiskey and, and would have leant over the edge of the perimeter uh, and had his glass of whiskey uh, once a week. He believed it was going beyond the, the rules of scripture and we, we, we cannot advocate that the person is, is teetotal but we must advocate that they don't get drunk They control themselves. Courts considered the case of the the city worker who beat up the 70-year-old taxi driver because he couldn't find his home. The city worker claimed that he was drunk and he didn't know what he was doing. And this is why this ruling is here in the text. Not a drunkard. Someone who has self-control. And how are we to use this qualification? Well, I think the onus is on any elected man to own up if he does have a drink problem. Members aren't expected to look for a purple nose or smell the breath of potential elders or to check in the person's bin for bottles or cans of alcohol. But one in four families in Northern Ireland have an alcohol problem. And it cannot be out of the question that within the bounds of the Reformed Presbyterian Church, there are homes where alcohol consumption is a problem. The selected man has an issue with this. The onus is on them to declare it. I think also that Or prayer in Psalm 139 that we thought of this morning should be used by us. Lord, you know the hearts of all men. Help us as a congregation as we vote for new elders. Show us, Lord, in your providence and by your spirit. And I think we can also learn from the the Jewish understanding and application of this word that they applied it in a wider context of someone who had self-control. They applied it to a Jew who married a Midianite. They said, that man was a drunkard. They weren't controlling themselves properly in marrying an on-Jew. Some of the Christian Jews applied it To those who crucified Christ, the nation wasn't acting as it should have done. Not in control of themselves. And so bizarre and extreme behavior, I think, can be included in the absence of self-control mentioned here. And fourthly, Verse 7 says he must not be violent. 
The words were initially used of overzealous bishops who physically beat erring believers. It was widened to include verbal abuse. Then it came to mean browbeating. Browbeating someone into submission by threat, by a dominating spirit. There is a place for rebuke and correction and the use of session authority. But there's no place in the church for bullying. There are times for the eldership to stand its ground, to speak to a a member about their ways and rebuke them. That's not bullying. Christ cleansing the temple, moving the people out from from buying and selling in the house of God was, was not bullying. It was a rightful, divine use of his authority. A bully forces others to do neutral acts. There's no right, there's no wrong in what they're forcing the other to do, but they force them, they impose, they browbeat their opinion down upon them to give them your homework, to buy Fanta in the tuck shop for them, to give them your place in the queue. Is the person you're thinking of voting for an employer? How does he treat the employees? How does he use his power in the workplace? And lastly, he must not be greedy for gain. Frequently in the press, the income of leaders is examined. There are times when they are heavily criticized for using loopholes in the law to, to advance the, the, their income. And, and I, I, I do have a, an issue with that. If there is a, a tax loophole and the, the person is able to maximize that tax loophole, well, well I, I don't really have have an issue with that. I think that the loophole should then be closed if it is a a wrong practice. What's being disqualified here is dishonest gain. Gain outside of the law. Gain breaking the law. Money has become their God. Money is Lord in their life. Money dominates they're living. And this would become a problem in the commitments of time and priorities if the person was elected as an elder. Scandals might ensue, bad reputations would result. But it's not just condemning the person who cheats on his tax return or expenses claim or, or other Benefits that they they pursue. What about the man who avoids church gatherings to work hours 
He's not required to work for an extra 40 pound. Is money his God? His Lord? To the detriment of the fellowship and the outreach, and the worship and the work of the people of God. And so, at the congregational meeting on the 9th of October, as we come to vote for up to four men to manage in this congregation, this section reminds us that the qualifications to be looked for and searched for are spiritual. Not how many GCSEs or A-levels the person has or, or degrees they might have obtained, but are they spiritual men? Has the Spirit worked such a degree of sanctification in their lives, subduing sin? Money's not their God. They can forgive. They listen to other people's ideas. They're not bullies with the level of authority that they already have. Because the work of session is spiritual work. As we meet together, we're talking about how many times we should have communion. We're planning out the church year to include teaching and evangelism and fellowship. We're examining how we can address those who are not attending and win them back and speak with them in love and humility. These are the spiritual issues that we're addressing. We're not talking about the size of the collection bowls. We're not talking about the sufficiency of the lighting in the building. It's spiritual matters that we're addressing and we need men who will attend those meetings and have spiritual input into those spiritual matters that we're wrestling with. And in looking for the qualities in such men, we are looking for qualities that are found in their fullness in our Savior. There was no arrogance in him. For he prayed, Father, not my will, but yours be done. There was no sinful anger in him because he prayed, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. There was no lack of self-control in him even in that moment of cleansing the temple. Every ounce of pure anger within him was managed and directed and controlled. And he was the one who, though he was rich, yet for our sakes, he became poor. And we're praying and looking for men who have in good measure those qualities that we find in Christ, our righteousness and Saviour. May God lead and guide us in, in this work, we pray.